Please join me in the spirit of prayer. God of the past, the present, and the future, in these days of culmination and commencement, we give you thanks for bringing this Princeton University community together in observance of accomplishment and promise. Grant us the vision to see the history of our lives that stretches out behind us and the hoped-for future that lies ahead. In looking back, we honor all those who helped us to arrive at this point, the tireless support of a parent, a challenge from a professor, the playful comfort of a friend, and the inspiration from the generations that have come before. We give thanks for the alchemy of diverse people, compelling ideas, and personal rigor that generated the cumulative wisdom each individual carries into this chapel today. We take this sacred moment to recall the people of this great class of 2007 who are no longer with us. Alexander Adam, Alan Ebersol, and Melissa Huang. Our thoughts are with their families as we remember with thanksgiving their contributions to the members of this class and to Princeton University. As we envision the future, we pray that each member of this graduating class might continue to approach the world with wonder, continuously curious and delighted to learn and grow in knowledge. May they seek and find love, recognize and create beauty, and be the source and celebrance of joy. God, may these graduates face the great challenges of our day with purposeful employ in the service of our nation and in the world. May they be creative and persistent in alleviating suffering, increasing well-being, and forging paths of reconciliation between peoples and nations. Thank you, Lord, for this moment. May we be attentive to one another and to you as we celebrate this great graduating class and look towards the future with the hope that they inspire. Amen. Al-Fatiha, first read in Arabic, then followed in English. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Ar-Rahmanirrahim. Maliki Yawmiddin. Iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'in. Ihdina sirat al-mustaqim. Sirat al-ladhina an'amta alayhim. Ghayr al-maghdubi alayhim. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, praise be to God, the cherisher of the worlds, the compassionate, the, ma- the merciful, the master of the day of judgment. You alone we worship, and your aid we seek. Show us the straight way the way of those who you have favored. 
not of those who have incurred your wrath, nor of those who have gone astray. Good afternoon, and welcome to Princeton University's 260th baccalaureate service. This service, which falls between the hoopla of reunions and the pomp and circumstance of commencement, gives you and your families a chance to reflect on the remarkable road you have traveled since joining our university community. Today is a time to look inward to contemplate the qualities that saw you through the most demanding course, the toughest match, or the day that followed the all-night party you should never have attended. Today is also a time to look outward, to give thanks for the classmates who have cheered and challenged you, for the professors, instructors, coaches, and chaplains who have been your guides and mentors, and for the parents, siblings, and relatives who have never lost faith in your ability to make it to the finish line. Thank you for coming together this afternoon to celebrate the spirit of Princeton, a spirit you have helped to nourish and define in the past four years. May it always light your way. A reading from the Isha Upanishad, first in Sanskrit, then in English. Yastu Sarvani Bhutayatmane Vanu Upashiti Sarva Bhuteshu Chatmananam Tatona Vijugupsate Yasmin Sarvani Bhutanat Vabhut Vijanata Tatra Komoha Koshoka Ekat Vamanu Upashata. One who beholds all beings in the self and the self in all beings. He never turns away from it. When to one who understands, the self has become all things, what doubt, what trouble can there be to him who once beheld that unity? Please join me responsively for Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth God's handiwork. One day tells its tale to another, and one night imparts knowledge to another. Although they have no words or language, and their voices are not heard. In the deep has God set a pavilion for the sun. It comes forth like a bridegroom out of his chamber. It rejoices like a champion to run its course. It goes forth from the othermost edge of the heavens and runs about to the end of it again. Nothing is hidden from its burning heat. The law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and gives wisdom to the innocent. The Jews of the Lord are just and rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear and gives light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
More to be desired are they than gold, more than fine gold, sweeter far than honey, than honey in the comb. A reading from James. Be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word, and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For when, for when they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they are like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to take care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world.
Introducing John Fleming is a little like uncorking a bottle of champagne. The knowledge he has brilliantly acquired and generously shared in more than 40 years at Princeton bubbles and sparkles and leaves one thirsty for more. Although Professor Fleming retired as the Lewis W. Fairchild Class of 1924 Professor of English and Comparative Literature last spring, his wisdom, legendary wit, and devotion to Princeton continues to make themselves felt, and I hope there will be many last chances lectures in his future. Professor Fleming has made our university community a more rewarding place to learn, teach, and live since earning a doctorate from Princeton in 1963, and two years later, accepting an assistant professorship in the Department of English. A former Rhodes Scholar, he has centered his scholarly life around the study of medieval culture, bringing to his task an exceptional eye for detail and a keen sense of the whole. Whether his subject is the works of Geoffrey Chaucer, the Franciscan order, or the relationship between literature and visual art, he has brought the Middle Ages to life through his inspired exploration of their most important literary and religious texts. Professor Fleming is also a master teacher who has captured the attention and the hearts of generation of undergraduates and graduate students with his erudition, humor, and integrity. His undergraduate course on Chaucer ranks among the most popular classes ever offered on our campus bridging the linguistic and historical divide that separates us from the 14th century. As one of his students put it, he conveyed the beauty of and the craft behind the poetry with such precision, lucidity, and wit that I could hardly wait to go back over the texts in light of what I had just learned. Professor Fleming has also immersed himself in the life of this university. He is the longest serving college master of Wilson College in Princeton's history, reflecting his belief that teaching does not begin and end in the classroom. He was a founding member of the Department of Comparative Literature and chaired the Department of English from 1981 to 1987. Others know him best as the Chief Marshal for University Convocations or the author of the lively Gladly Learn, Gladly Teach column in the Daily Princetonian, or dare I say it, as a model for Maxim, where he posed in Tweedy glory with a trio of pierced and tattooed youngsters decked out in designer punk wear. Bet you didn't know that. Professor Fleming has shone in these and many other roles at Princeton and beyond. Indeed, as the Prince observed on his retirement, he represents the ideal for which all professors should strive. Please join me in extending the warmest of welcomes to a truly great Princetonian, John Fleming.
class of 2007, soon to bear a name yet greater, I greet you with a paternal affection. I greet also your parents, grandparents, and friends who have done so much to bring you to this day. And I greet my faculty colleagues, the administrative officers and the trustees who work tirelessly and sometimes effectively to advance the truly noble aims of our common cause. On the lintel of a hearth in Proctor Hall in the Graduate College is a Latin inscription that reads, enter good, exit even better. The positioning of the epigraph is perhaps ambiguous, as I presume that it is the graduate school experience rather than the actual fireplace that is meant to affect the amelioration. <laughs> but you get the idea, and that's just our graduate students. One day, chiseled into the stone wall of this holy place, will be an inscription that reads, they entered this sacred fane on baccalaureate Sunday as the great class of 2007. They marched out the Princeton class of destiny. <laughs> you have done me a very great honor in inviting me to give this baccalaureate address. Ordinarily, the invitation follows the fame of the speaker. You've reversed the process, making me famous by issuing your invitation. <laughs> Truth in advertising requires a somewhat fuller statement. In years gone by, I was actually a non-voting advisor to the student committee that recommends the baccalaureate speaker. Now, I hasten to add that unlike President Tillman, who was a member of the selection committee that chose herself, I was... <laughs> I... I was not a member of this year's committee. But I know how things work. The committee makes three recommendations, and the president chooses by single transferable vote. There is one intergalactically famous political figure. There is one internationally famous media celebrity. Then there is a safety candidate <laughs> whose modest virtues are minimal ambulatory power and availability. Now, my guess is that Hillary's pollsters were skittish, and Larry King laughed at the honorarium. The rest is history, and you are there. Uh, unless I mistake myself, this is actually the second time I've had the honor of addressing you as a class. On a warm September evening in 2003, from a temporary podium facing Cannon Green, I was the warm-up act for an eminent politician and alumnus who talked to you at an integrity assembly. I remember the event but dimly, and the fact that you've invited me here today suggests that you remember it not at all. <laughs> Still, I regard it as a great success. I told you to be good, and lo, you have been good, very good. Can it work a second time? This talk will be about you, but it must begin with a few words about me. I am 71 years old. Last June, I retired after 40 years on the Princeton faculty. I suppose that means that you are swifter than I am by a ratio of 10 to 1. In retirement, the sense of vital connection with the daily life of the institution 
erodes rapidly. I shall spend the whole of the next academic year away, and I, when I return, that sense will be wholly erased. Hence, 2007, you are the last Princeton class I ever will really know. Some of you were my freshman or sophomore academic advisees. Some of you took a freshman seminar on Dante with me. Quite a few of you took upper division courses with me. Hence, I am swimming in that same bittersweet sea of emotionality in which you were bobbing about during this long weekend. The word baccalaureate, of course, refers to the bachelor's degree you will receive on front campus two days hence. This will be a sacramental action, a sacrament being the, quote, outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. The degree is an inward and spiritual grace conveyed by President Tillman and by, by the authority granted to her by the trustees. Its outward and visible sign, the diploma, you will pick up on Cannon Green. Don't forget to get yours. Even though it's only outward and visible, it did cost well over a hundred grand. <laughs> Baccalaureate is, the, is a Latin word invented in the Middle Ages uh, by translating the old French bachelier. A bachelier was an apprentice knight, a warrior of such modest means that he fought beneath the banner of a superior knight. The etymology of bachelier is obscure, but we think it might derive from sub plus chevalier. This would mean someone beneath a horseman. Being beneath a horseman, though perhaps preferable to being beneath a horse, still strikes me as less than exalted status. Other associations of the bachelier are suggested by Chaucer's description of his squire, son of the knight, of whom he writes, with him there was his son, a young squire, a lover and a lusty bachelor, so haughty loved that be nicter tale he slept no more than doth a nicked in gala. Now as readers of Romeo and Juliet will remember, the nightingale is a dirty bird. And you have Chaucer's word for it that bachelors of whatever gender are hot. Within a hundred years of its first appearance in English, its semantic field had expanded to include its academic meaning and its more common and current sociological one. A man as yet unmarried, but ripe for the marital state. This suggests doubtless that the closest social analogies to medieval warfare must have been undergraduate life and matrimony. But, but the implication of a preliminary stage, a transition beyond adolescence, but not too far beyond, remains. Hence, the perfect fit of baccalaureate and commencement itself. In every commencement address I've ever heard, or given for that matter, it has been pointed out that the word commencement clearly denotes a beginning, not an ending. Of course, there is an ending, and I must warn you about it. Beginning on Tuesday at noon, you are no longer the younger generation, and it's all downhill after that. <laughs> the plenary valorization of the youthful, the contemporary, the innovative, the preference for 12-year-old violinists and 19-year-old metaphysicians, and the appetite for all the daily Apple updates, these are necessary features of American dynamism. At your age, I embraced it completely, but I find I have grown in wisdom wonderfully in the last five decades. 
and I think you will do so soon. I now realize that at the very least, the quintessence of the here and now must be tempered with the wisdom of the ancients, meaning something written, thought, or said sometime before the day before yesterday. When I was an officer in the English department, I went on occasion to cocktail parties in New York, at which I sometimes encountered minor celebrities and glamorous young women in publishing. At one such event with one such glamorous woman, I fell into literary conversation concerning various contemporary novelists. I read a lot of books, and I did swimmingly for a medievalist until we arrived at John Updike. She asked my opinion of his latest book, the title of which I shall not soon forget, The Coup. Now, just for the record, I have and had read several books by John Updike, but I had to tell her that I had not read The Coup. What a pity, she said, all tentative interest in me draining from her face. It's been out for six weeks. Well, but even as she turned in search of someone more interesting, I had the wit to pose a question of my own. Have you read The Consolation of Philosophy of Boethius? I asked. <laughs> this actually stopped her in her tracks. The, the what of philosophy, she asked. She hadn't even heard of it. No? What a pity, I replied. It's been out for 1,453 years. Now, from this elevated pulpit, my view of the class of 2007 is one of extraordinary uniformity. <laughs> Hardly surprising, given the fact that you're all wearing the same uniform, the uniform of a Bachelor of Arts and Sciences. Yet I know for a fact that the black robes are covering a near riot of individuality. You're an allegorical tableau of the philosophical problem of the one and the many, and the social and spiritual challenge of the individual and society, subjects which you have undoubtedly touched upon in your careers here. Neither as a nation nor as a university have we got this one fully worked out yet. It still says on the penny, a pluribus unum, with the emphasis clearly on the unity for the last 20 years in the academy, we've been extolling the pluribus part. The magic word here is diversity. Diversity aspires to the status of a terminal good and therefore a terminal goal. What does it mean and what does it not mean? Actually, academic diversity has a quite delimited range having to do with obvious racial, ethnic, sexual, and religious distinctions. Some folks are black, some white, some straight, some gay, some Hispanic, some Asian American, some Methodists, some Muslims. Diversity does not, at Princeton does not mean that we have many students here of below average intelligence, or many who are illiterate, or quite a few who are dying of AIDS. I'll not go on with a list of the underprivileged but very real categories of world diversity, but I will ask you to think as Princeton graduates, how you are and how you are not like everybody else in the world. From the 18th century, we have inherited in 18th century language the doctrine that all men are created equal 
and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, then enumerated as including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Incidentally, the feel-good phrase, the pursuit of happiness, was a last-minute substitution for the possession of property, and it was a mistake. The pursuit of happiness is the stuff of dreamers. The possession of property is the stuff of lawyers. <laughs> the stealth appearance of the deity in our Declaration of Independence has proved something of a political embarrassment and abused by some on the so-called religious right as a charter of theocracy and by others on the so-called secular left as apparently a typographical error. As a Christian believer, I'm less bothered than some of my colleagues by Jefferson's mixing of genres. Our founders were wise legislators, and one mark of wisdom in a legislator is a healthy appreciation of what law cannot do, no less than of what it can do. Legislation could not make of the whole world a family of brothers and sisters. The recognition of the universal fatherhood of God one day might. Hence the messianic requirement to, quote, respect the dignity of every human being belongs where it is in the baptismal covenant, but not in the New Jersey statutes. Where do Princetonians stand with regard to the universal equality of all humankind? I see from US News and World Report that Princeton is an elite university. The specter of elitism has haunted all my years here. Who wants to be an elitist? Many of my faculty colleagues are appalled by elitism. They combat it valiantly by wearing blue jeans to work, by sharing first name terms with their students, and by maintaining rigorous neutrality concerning the competing moral and aesthetic claims of Paradise Lost and Spider-Man 3. But wait a minute. What elite means is chosen, selected, or elected out of a group. Its adjectival synonym is choice. An opening for an assistant professor in the humanities here may garner several hundred applications, all of them from people with PhDs. Of this group, four or five may be invited to campus for public ordeals not unlike the old Iberian auto da fe. This process yields one assistant professor who six years later in the tenure process faces a scrutiny yet more intensive if she can walk on water, there's a good chance she will at least be proposed for promotion by her department. The name then goes to a ferocious committee in Nassau Hall. Its members are all hyper-elites, but they do not act until they have weighed the solicited opinions of literally the greatest experts in the world. It's a little hard to credit that a successful candidate is actually just one of the boys and girls. Not long ago, I was on an appointments committee uh, reading the recommendations of job candidates. Concerning a certain candidate, one letter said that this person's work was, quote, always exciting and often brilliant. The adverb often spelled his doom. <laughs> what? Only often brilliant? Princeton professors are brilliant 24-7. Rejected. 
These are the professors who moan about the evils of elitism. And you people, you people, <laughs> you class of destiny, you are, if anything, even worse, meaning in this instance, naturally, even better. What it took to get into this institution is exceeded only by what it took you to get out. My, my, my career at Princeton was not paralyzed by self-doubt. I modestly considered myself capable of handling not merely my job, but any job in the place. But to one height, I knew I could never ascend. I could never, ever have gained admission to the freshman class, yours or any other Princeton class. I simply don't have what it takes. I had never done any of those things that you wrote about in the autobiographical statement of your admissions packet. I never backpacked through the Carpathians. I never made a paper mache model of the New York subway system. <laughs> Not even with an unrusted nail did I perform an emergency tracheotomy <laughs> on an asthmatic camel in the Gobi Desert. thus saving myself and my companions from certain death. I did not, in fact, ghostwrite the enabling legislation for the most sweeping program of environmental remediation ever undertaken by the Ohio State Legislature. Now, my big extracurricular was the 4-H club. Now, under these circumstances, I've always been awed by Princeton undergraduates. It didn't used to surprise me that a lot of them did very well in their coursework. But the class of destiny had been here but a single year when the powers that be determined that you lacked one last full measure of elitism in the form of dog-eat-dog -dog competitive grade-grubbing. <laughs> About a quarter of you transcendental geniuses ought to be getting C's. This was called combating grade inflation. The combat was brief but sharp. In relation to its peers, Princeton suddenly catapulted into the stratosphere of hyper-elitism. In an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, faster than the dollar has fallen against the euro, the Harvard A became the Princeton B+. <laughs> the, famous, the famous Yale Gentleman's C, that capacious and tolerant grade that has enabled the careers of our incumbent chief executive. <laughs> And so many other great American leaders of state and industry disappeared from the Princeton scale altogether. So I'm afraid that your elite status is simply a fact beyond dispute. For the moment, you're the most elite Princetonians in history, and a Princeton degree comes in a package of privilege. As compared with most Americans, you will make more money, enjoy better health, live in better housing, have better prospects for your children, go to the Caribbean more often and the state penitentiary less often. Some of your privilege is defensible. Much of it is not. 
For I am not describing social justice, just sociology, something altogether different. To deny the privilege is nonsense. To inveigh against it, churlish and usually hypocritical. No, what you have to do is face up to it. Some of you doubtless have parents who sometimes give you advice, even when unsolicited. My mother, dead these 20 years, was such a parent. She used to say things like, you may live to regret that, and handsome is as handsome does. Her apothemes annoyed me intensely. What annoyed me most of all was that what she said was invariably true. You may now marvel at the effortless transition or seamless segue with which I move to the heart of this baccalaureate address, the true and annoying part. This involves the ancient maxim, noblesse oblige. That meant roughly that social privilege demanded social obligation. The English version is that from those to whom much has been given, much will be expected. Last year, in an odd reversal, a comedian gave a fluffy baccalaureate address, while a public figure, former President Bill Clinton, gave a very profound class day address. Its theme was not partisan. The Republican leader of the Senate, who was in the audience, applauded with abandon. Mr. Clinton asked the seniors to reflect on three questions. What kind of a world do you now live in? What kind of a world would you like to live in? Finally, what are you, you personally, ready or able to do to move from that first world in the direction of the second? I can suggest an approach to the first question. The world as a whole is very different from the one you view in this magnificent cathedral or will view from beneath the pleached canopy of front campus on Tuesday. For a very quick summary of the world you live in, you could do worse than visit the United Nations Millennium Development website. I presume that you've at least heard about the United Nations Millennium Development Goals, the latest exhortation from that international body that we should address the terrible problems of poverty in much of the world. I shall mention only one goal, one of the easiest to understand. The second millennium goal, solemnly undertaken by the world's leaders, with our national leaders prominent among them, is that by the year 2015, two Princeton student generations from today, every boy and girl in the world will have the opportunity to quote, a complete, to complete a full course of primary education. Now if that's the goal, what's the current reality? The current reality is that in the developing world, a quarter of the population, approaching a billion people, is illiterate. There are more than 100 million children who never go to school at all. Nearly half the girls in the world's poorest countries have no access to any education. I fear that there's not a ghost of a chance of fulfilling this second goal by 2015. 
The problem is not money. The estimate is that it would cost about $10 billion a year. That is chump change. That is half of what Americans spend each year on ice cream. No, the problem is that my generation, though appalled by these statistics, is too tired or too timid or too distracted to come up with the requisite imagination and will. We don't want to live in a world where 100 million kids have no chance to go to school, but we're leaving it up to you to do something about it. Any of you who used to read my newspaper columns will remember, probably with the disapprobation that used to win me fulminating emails, that I am not your typical faculty pious liberal. So set aside for a moment everything preachy, warm, and fuzzy about the second millennium goal. Think locally. Think even selfishly. Is there anybody in this large audience who does not realize that universal primary education for the children of the world would be a far greater concrete contribution to the national security of the United States than is the war in Iraq? I hasten to add, I hasten to add that I'm not so simple-minded as to think that the money, though a necessary prerequisite of a solution, is itself a solution. The world's mess, like the world's grandeur, is infinitely complex. Felix qui potuit rerum conoscere causas. That great Virgilian line, happy is the one who can know the causes of things, is carved over a mantle in Frick. It's a golden sentence, and it is addressed to you destinarians, you physical scientists and you engineers, you probers of complex systems, and to you economists and political and social scientists, you explorers of human community, and to also you historians and students of arts, art and literature, cartographers of the human past and of the human heart. One mark of the mature elite sensibility is the capacity to experience gratitude and the power to express it generously, in action as well as in word. So I hope that even amid so much exuberant emotion, you are grateful for this place, and above all, to those in many generations who support, encouragement, and not infrequently sacrifice, allowed you to be here. I myself leave the place realizing that for me, it has been a kind of terrestrial paradise, surrounded as I have been with marvelous colleagues and marvelous students. For me, the best that colleagueship has to offer is represented by my friend of 40 years, Robert Hollander, 55, among the two or three elitist dentisti in the world. Professor Hollander yesterday issued you an indirect challenge when he received the Alumni Council's top award 
for service to the university. Who in your class will be the first to merit that prize? And surely you can do it in less than the 52 years that it took him. In thanking you students too, I must mention a few representatives of the larger whole. You probably have no idea what pleasure you bring to your classmates and faculty friends, quite apart from your official academic work, through your talents as displayed in public performances, of which I have seldom experienced fewer than three a week for the last four decades. I, think all, I thank all of you Princeton athletes, and especially the members of the football and baseball teams, men and women's basketball, women's softball, which happen to be the groups whose exertions I have most often viewed. I thank all you theater people, actors, designers, technicians, producers of plays, musicals, dance recitals, at Antim, at 185 Nassau Street, in the Berlin Theater, in the college theaters. I thank all of you writers and editors at the Daily Princetonian, the Nassau Weekly, and the numerous fugitive literary magazines. My final and most special thanks go to the musicians, beginning with the marching band, but thank God not long lingering there. <laughs> there are the many singing groups with cheesy names, like the Tiger Spoofs and the Nassau Loonies, Above all, there are the amazingly accomplished classical musicians who have turned the Taplin Auditorium into a kind of permanent Princeton festival and who have created within the university a symphony orchestra that is the worthy peer of any to be found in the cultural centers of our country. One group, our superb chapel choir, is here to be thanked in person. So, class of destiny, we must be on our separate ways. As you go, be sure to take with you not merely your diploma, but your whole education. I shall hope to see you around. That's a platitude, but then this is a baccalaureate address. <laughs> Besides, it's a platitude plus. One of the particular pleasures of long service at Princeton, as a Princeton professor is that just about half the time I am in or on my way to a really interesting place, I'm likely to have a chance meeting with an old Princeton student. I have had such encounters at the Louvre, at the Santa Fe Opera, the Cleveland Art Museum, on a jogger's trail in Holland Park, at a tiny trattoria in Siena. Sometimes, these sudden meanings are as mysterious as they are strange. Once in O'Hare Airport, a man in a business suit practically jumped over the security barrier to accost me. Professor, uh, professor, he screamed. Uh, you changed my life, professor. <laughs> he continued as the crowd formed. You taught me money and banking. Well, I try to take the larger view. <laughs> you cannot expect that a fellow who takes a course called money and banking 
when he is 19 years old will be particularly sharp when he is 49. Perhaps the firing of the synapses was slightly out of time, but the heart was in the right place. He knew that I was from Princeton and that someone there had taught him something. <laughs> another time, another time in London, I was walking along the street next to one of those Victorian hospitals that look, uh, that look strikingly like the abandoned factories observable from the train just south of Secaucus uh, Junction. A doctor in complete gear, green scrubs, rubber gloves, nifty hairnet, dangling stethoscope, rushed out of the building and accosted me. Professor Fleming, he began. You probably don't remember me, but chances of remembering him would have been slightly better without the surgical mask he was wearing. <laughs> So, class of 2007, I shall hope to see you unmasked around the Rialto in Venice or at Angkor Wat. I'll hope to see you in the Library of Congress if you read books. And if not, I can look for you in Congress itself. <laughs> I, I shall hope to see you at Yankee Stadium or maybe at the speaker's podium of the General Assembly of the United Nations. And naturally, I'll be looking for you in the P-Raid. Until then, destinarians, take my advice. Be good. In domino vos saluto. Please stand. <laughs> I invite you to join me in the spirit of prayer. Blessed are you, O God, creator of life. You give us purpose and hope. Blessed are you, eternal truth. You give us minds to know you in the things that you have made. Blessed are you, source of all mercy. You know our weakness and are always ready to forgive. 
Blessed are you, lover of souls. You bind in one community the living and the dead. Blessed are you, wellspring of all wisdom. Let us continue in prayer as we pray for Princeton together. O eternal God, the creator and preserver of all things, we beseech you to bestow upon this university your manifold gifts of grace, your truth to those who teach, your joy to those who learn, your wisdom to those who administer, your laws to those who hold its mission and its work in trust. By these gracious influences of your spirit, bind all who bear the name of Princeton into the company of those who know your steadfast love. Amen. A blessing from the Catholic Christian tradition. Deep peace of the running wave to you. Deep peace of the flowing air to you. Deep peace of the quiet earth to you. Deep peace of the shining stars to you. Deep peace of the sun of peace to you. A blessing from the Buddhist tradition. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. May all beings be at ease. All those beings in the world, the weak or the strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, those seen and unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. A prayer from the Christian tradition. Eternal God and our Father, you have set before each of us an untraveled way full of beauty and mystery, which calls for courage and the spirit of adventure. Grant us thy light to lead us onward. To the youth of this day in all nations, give us a vision of thy purpose for their lives. And to those of us who are older, grant a return of the wonder which was the glory of youth and first brought thy light into our hearts. Lord, may the wonder never fade nor the light become darkness, and may your grace be with us all. A Jane blessing for universal forgiveness and friendship. Kamemi save jiva, save jiva kamantume, meti me save puyeshu, veram manjam nakanai. I grant forgiveness to all living beings, all living beings grant me forgiveness. My friendship is with all living beings. My enmity is non-existent. Ahinso parmor dharma, parasparo graho jivanam. Nonviolence is the supreme religion. 
All life is bound together by mutual support and interdependence. One of the greatest gifts we can give to one another is the gift of God's peace. So I invite you in this moment, if you will stand, to share the peace, and then to turn to those immediately near you and to take their hand, to shake it, to look into their eyes, and from heart to heart to share that peace of God which passes all understanding. The peace of God be always with you. Please share a sign of that peace one with another. And now, if you will, class of 2007, more blessings. More blessings, blessings, blessings upon you, students about to be graduates, alums, women and men of the great class of destiny, Princeton class of 2007. Bless you well. Blessings, blessings, blessings as you commence to lives of accomplishment of love and service. Blessings we ask from the Father of Lights, our rock and redeemer, Source and mother of the spirit of all life, light, word, and wisdom, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, who is Allah, all merciful, the spirit of Buddha, Brahma, and Krishna, spirit of the prophets of Amos and Isaiah and of Abraham, Sarah and Isaac and Ismail, of Esther, Mohammed, and Lord Jesus, the great spirit of our ancestors 
and children's children, blessings that will bring you courage and make you peacemakers, to hunger and thirst for rightness and fairness, blessings of wisdom and right judgment, of compassion and mercy, blessings as you graduate into the nation's service and the service of all people, blessings as you go forth under the motto of this university. In God's name, may she and you flourish in your work and your vocation, in family and community, among friends and all neighbors in this world, in times of creativity and challenge. Blessings, blessings, blessings. And now go forth, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. <laughs>